Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. to this broadcast of Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. It is a Friday morning. We've made it through the week, headed into the weekend. It is June the 28th, 2019. We're almost into July. You know, speaking of July, and I don't go to these things, nor do I celebrate the 4th of July for historical uh, reasons and because of the um, nature of USA Inc., but they must have been shooting fireworks last night in Mount Holly, uh, which is probably about uh, 15 miles from me. Um, But somebody, well, I I thought, again, I was listening um, like I was... um, back in Iraq or something. I mean, not Iraq, Saudi Arabia. And uh, just hearing all those fireworks going off. So um, that reminded me, I guess they celebrating the 4th early. Uh, So again, welcome to the program. Lots to unpack here. Some um, pretty important news stories by way of the uh, nine areas of people activity. Um, For those who do not know about uh, Mr. Neely Fuller, just put his name, Google his name. Um, you'll find his book, The Compensatory Code. It's sold on Amazon and a whole bunch of other outlets. Um, but he comes up with, with what you call, and other people might have called him, grouped them together and called him something else, but um, it's simple, nine areas of people activity. And I feel like number six, politics controls all other activities. It controls religion. How does it control religion? Um, well, some some countries, uh, like China, have outlawed religion, period. They treat it as a mental illness. That's how they look at it. Um, also, here in the United States, when this um, nonprofit status and taxing, and, and you know, that, that falls under law, but who makes the law but the politicians? So politics certainly controls war. Um, entertainment, what what could be on television, what can be heard on your radio station, they, you know, regulate everything. Well, politics, politicians appoint people to those positions that control that area. So uh, labor, of course, what's the federal minimum wage? So politics, economics, education, because we'll be talking about education, which in this country, how much education you have seems to... Um, at one time been paid to having an education, but now we're finding out that having an education doesn't equal economics. Um, you know, with the bills that the bill that was rolled out by Sanders and um, the members, the coalition of the uh, women in uh, progressive caucus 
in the house and they doing the student debt, gonna pay off all student student debt. So that is a logical fallacy. Get a four-year education, get a degree, get a PhD, and then you'll be able to live your middle-class dreams or your upper-middle-class, or maybe, um, you know, down further the road, you can make millions. Well, that turned out to be a logical fallacy. So uh, last night was the second Democratic debate. You know there are so many of them um, that that I guess they had to do it this way. Um, I really didn't watch last night either. And let me tell you why. The reason is, is because I follow politics every day as because I come on uh, this radio station and I talk to you about political news because politics that people of activity area, I pay the most attention to because as I stated earlier, it controls everything. Um, So I know... um, these politicians' history, I know what they fought for, I know what they're fighting for, um, where they stand on this issue or that issue. And so watching them answer answer questions um, from mainstream media, uh, corporate people who are using the uh, cable or, or using that broadcast to control our minds, you know, who gets to pick the questions? Um, Certainly, the question never had did come up. They want to talk about reparations in the first one and the second one, but the Thirteenth Amendment was never formed in the question, and none of the candidates seem to be that in tune with the Thirteenth Amendment and see that it is an issue. I mean, how many documentaries got to be made about slavery never being abolished? How many, how many years does New Abolitionist Radio have to be on air and telling people and pointing people to books like Slavery by Another Name, pointing them to the uh, 13th by Ava DuVernay, pointing them to American Jail um, by uh, Brother William. I can't think of his last name right now. Um, but yeah, never came up. How are you going to talk about reparations and slavery without talking about the fact that it still exists and the need to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment. Man, you want to talk about woke. That's really being woke. Um, As I saw some people using hashtags like that, woke uh, vote or something like that. Yeah, that's a real, but a woke candidate, that's what I would call them, a woke candidate, if they willing to get up there and to acknowledge um, that slavery. I forgot to play the Charles Blow video where he was on the CNN uh, debating uh, Rick San, not Rick Sanchez, Rick Santorum, and he he played the Thirteenth Amendment card on old Rick, and I, and so I didn't get to play that. I'm gonna have to find that again and pull it up. I'm probably have to uh, make my own propaganda clip uh, from it, but I mean just. So I don't watch them. I know they're not going to be talking about the fact that slavery. And again, I know these people's backgrounds. I I, I do my research because it's part part of my job. So I don't watch them. Um, I will watch clips. And Senator um, Kamala or Kamala, I think is how she prefers her name be pronounced. Kamala Harris lit into Joe Biden over uh, school racial segregation with facts. Um, she mentioned her childhood as a black child in the second generation of children 
uh, to go to desegregated schools while Biden was colluding with segregationists. Now, Biden wants to frame it in his uh, publicists and what have you as working across the aisle to get things done. But when you worked across the aisle, it wasn't that you was getting these racist segregationists like Jesse Helms. Um, I know Jesse Helms. He he is from North Carolina. I know all about Jesse Helms and what type of man he was. Um, there's even a street around here that somebody on their private property, um, well, really they own stolen property, but not uh, let's not uh, go there. But they named a little side road at them into a trailer park called Je- that Jesse Hams Street. You know, I know who Jesse Hams is, and, and, and I saw um, the pictures of, of, you know, how Biden always invading people's personal space and all up on them, showing affection into it. And he was real affectionate and hugging up on Jesse Hams. I don't know what legislation they was working on, but again, it more than likely had to do with segregation, racial seg- segregation. And so she lit, she lit into him, you know, but he wants to spend, I'm working across, but you were working across that aisle to do something that was not going to produce justice, but was going to continue to subject African Americans to unconstitutional racial laws. We're not going to get into logical fallacies about, about, Black people just wanting to go be close to white people. I don't mean to say that in a mocking voice, but I am kind of a comedian. Um, you, you, if you ask my family members, but we hear that, you know, oh, they just wanted to. No, no, it was one man who said that. Why should I send a uh, bus my child? They was already busting black children. Um, a black man lived in some some area of the country. Um, didn't like that his daughter had to spend all this time and get up uh, earlier than other kids to get on the bus. Other children, um, for those that take offense to uh, calling children kids, and, you know, it's a Southern thing. Um, um, but anyway, he said, and then the school that you have for the black people, um, you don't fund and it's it's dangerous uh they don't have the books they don't have this they don't have that they are not being put in an environment for them to uh set up for them to succeed academically of course we can point to um like the school my mom went to um that that was fully funded for whatever reason and she said they had everything they need it might have had to do with the wealth of the community at that time in, in in this area of the black community um um but that wasn't the reality for i mean you look at them schools today they show some i saw a story on chicago rats and stuff it's one on detroit rats and stuff ceiling falling in it, I, now I remember um, I had went to um, ex-girlfriend of mine with her son to his school in Charlotte S- terrible terrible conditions and and so um, he was saying I want her to go to the school that's closest to our house and this law telling me when my taxes is paying for it all you know, you taking taxes, withholdings out of my check, and then these children over here 
are in an environment, have all the facilities, all the support that they need, uh, all the basics, not struggling. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm taking you to court. And that's Brown versus Board of Education. Now, that was his reasoning. Now, what that did was strike down racial laws, Jim Crow laws, which are incorrect. And so anybody that's paying taxes into anything should have the freedom of movement to go wherever they choose. It, it, you know, uh, I would have preferred to stay at my uh, predominantly black school. I'm going to say it was all black when I went to Seal Elementary in um, uh, Detroit. But then I was uh, one of those chosen in the 70s to go cross town, take me from my neighborhood school, go cross town. And... You know, one thing my mom always told me, never let them put their hands on you, a teacher or any, or anybody else. You tell them to call your call your mother. Um, I would have preferred to stay at that school with teachers I had already known since I entered school in uh, elementary school. But then after that, when we even moved back um, down south in 79, um I was going to Mount Holly Middle School. To, it's predominantly white, so um, I can't. I found came across some data that says that they studied um, however many uh, black children that went to these integrated uh, schools or racially desegregated. It, it's a better term for uh, striking down um, unjust laws, and it said that those children. And it makes sense those children who went to those to those desegregated schools that were predominantly white, those black children uh, perform academically better than the children that was left behind. Children still being left behind today because uh, uh, we still have separate and unequal. But if you live in a certain area, they can't prevent you from going. So if you live in a predominantly white area where all the wealth is, uh, you know, the, the uh, parents themselves even have fundraisers for the school and what have you. You got more wealth than one than than um, the impoverished. Of course, you're going to produce better students. And that's what the data says. And then I was thinking about it today. Um in terms of why would people like Jesse Hams or anybody, a third good Marshall was another one he worked with, um, who had in, raped a black black maid and, and impregnated her, and then hid uh, his black child uh, from 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 this rape, and um, nobody even found out until after he passed away, and then but he secretly was providing. Uh, for her, but what was the reason they, other than um, just their just the evil, repulsive reasons of thinking that they better than somebody and looking at African Americans as animals or something like that, like you going to school with farm animals or something and you so disgusted? Well, what was the well? Really, let's go beyond the emotional, but but you know the um, the simple the simple ones, um, but let's go to what's another reason. They didn't want black children uh, competing against white children that will academically outperform their children if, if, if we have access to the same resources, the same teachers, 
and you know going to the same building um yeah and that's evident in my life in high school when I scored the second high I went to a 80% white high school but I scored the second highest this white girl outperformed me on the SAT but I had the second highest so that that destroys their superior their intellectual superiority right there they don't want that kind of data uh being produced because then it uh, it undermines their logical fallacy that by way of them being white that they're smarter they're better um the only thing that they're better at is being vicious and inhumane and i'm just speaking in generalized terms i'm i'm not individualizing it but in general like this is what the data data shows and so that's a re- another reason they didn't want black children competing that's why white workers didn't want uh uh black workers to have access to these factory jobs and, and what have you. That's why white unions practice racism against black workers. They don't want to have to compete. They want them they want everything to be set aside. You talk about set asides, uh set aside for them. We shouldn't have to compete because these people might outperform us and and you know some of us just ain't gonna be able to compete. That's the real deal, people. So they teach these people uh, radicalize these people, get them to believe in the religion of white supremacy on a logical fallacy that they better than black people. The real thing is that inf- inf- uh, their, the fear of being shown to be inferior to any black person in any people activity area. That's what segregation uh, was partly about as well. Making black children, non-white children go to schools that are not set up for them to succeed although you will have an individual or a group of individuals you'll have your unicorns and of of children who will be able to thrive no matter where they are but but those are rare those are rare flowers let's not act like that's how the majority uh, of it was so it was the debate was interesting uh from that point of view um but also i also started noticing that um you know a lot of these third way centrist democrats people identify as democrats which i don't i don't identify with i'm i identify as a black man i identify as black christian and that's about as far as it go if you won't slap labels on me um, you know, I'll accept African American because I know what what was what was the intent of that being expressed. Um, but I noticed that Bernie Sanders on um, social media that a common um, retweet or people saying the same things but changing up the words a little longer. This is the criticism they had from for Sanders. Sanders was an old man yelling at the television. I'm like, wow, really. I was, I, I was like, I don't know, is this misandry? Is this misandry? You know, because think of it on the flip side. Even though I don't buy a lot of Hillary Clinton's excuses, but when Hillary Clinton was raising her voice or they make a big deal out of saying women candidates can't raise their voice because then they'll be, you know, uh, uh, portrayed negatively. So... What? Why then, if Bernie Sanders has a speaking, a speaking, um, a speech pattern 
um, um, that he's really sp spoken this way all his life, inflecting, and when he's speaking to the, giving public speeches and arguing on the House floor. Actually, we should dig up that clip of him yelling into the microphone against Joe Biden's crime bill. So I'm like, is that what what? It, well, I know what it is, and I know the intent there is to just attach any kind of negativity to it. Um, a lot of it's in political immaturity, as Malcolm called it. Some of it's just immaturity in general. But I'm always watchful uh, in 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 especially during the Me Too movement, not saying all of them are that uh, are are fighting to raise awareness about um, the sexual abuse and, and harassment that women face um, in society, which includes the workplace. But some of those people are using that um, to as a cover for their misandry, which is the opposite of misogyny. But it's it's a ra irrational fear, hatred, vitriol for men just simply based on um, their gender, their male gender. So I feel like that was a cheap shot. Uh, this man been speaking like this all all his life. But then, you know, when um, Biden was raising his voice in trying to deflect from that verbal spanking. Um, in a nice way, in a respectful way, but she still uh, verbally spanked, spanked him. But when Senator Harris spanked him on segregation and working with racists, um, nobody said Biden was yelling at a black woman, you know, and, and, and not saying that that's a legitimate criticism. It's just yelling. Why I got to, you know, be racialized like that? I'm talking about codification. But no, but, you know, that's something that we hear. Oh, look at how he's treating those black women or here's this white man uh, yelling at this 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 black woman. I ain't see no charges of that. I ain't see no charges of why is Joe Biden yelling? Why does he have to yell? He's yelling at the TV or, or well, he was actually looking at her when he was yelling. So, you know, we can say he was, he was yelling. Nobody said nothing about that. But when Bernie Sanders is giving his answer and laying out um, whatever it is he was asked a question about and he speaks about it in a, in a passionate way, oh, that's an old man yelling at the television. Nothing about well, what was he? What was he talking about? What was he yelling about? Do you believe that healthcare is a human right? Do you believe that? I don't even know if all of these, any of these things were asked last night because I didn't watch it all. I don't need to. Uh, I'll I'll get caught up on the clips and and what have you and watch the clips. I uh, just was tired. Don't have time all the time to be watching television, especially on something that, and I'm just speaking for myself, this is not going to persuade me one way or the other. I already know that in the Democratic primary, I'm casting a ballot for Sanders' policies, not for him, but for the policies that were like uh, uh, Kirsten, I don't want to, um, Savali West, the new political editor of Essence tweeted out, she was like, she was like, say what you will about Sanders, but you could see the impact of his 2016 campaign and forcing the Democrats um, to, to take a stand on Medicaid for all, free college for all, 
you know, the issues that, that he stands up strong, strongly for. And so now you got, I heard Sam, uh, um, Harris on there, Medicaid for all, all of them, you know, and, and tackling the issue of of student loan debt and, and the unaffordability and then the inequality in, ter- in terms of pay and wealth in this country. Uh, Sanders been been pushing these same issues for all those years. So, I mean, really, if all you got out of Sanders was out of any of that or the way that he speaks, because people are critical, some people critical of the way I, I, I speak. But uh, saying but saying Sanders was an old man yelling at the television is that really uh, what you, all you took away from those debates last night? If I if if that's all you you took from that, I I should just move on um, because I I don't want to say uh, anything negative. A cheap shot, but it is a cheap shot that has nothing to do with the issues or the platform. Just like. Uh, this one guy on on Twitter said that Harris seems presidential. Now, what is that? I noticed that that you know, as long as I've been watching politics since the '80s, especially since uh, when I joined the military in '87 and watching Reagan and then Bush, and because now you know, I know that this. Even then, I knew that politics control whether or not I was going to be deployed somewhere and had to kill somebody or be killed, put in a situation like that, or a situation to help people kill other people and no, you know, I, I, I am totally against that now, but even then I knew politics control, control that, um, so um, glad that Bernie Sanders is, and, and Tulsi Gabbard, I talked about her yesterday, but that anti-imperialistic uh, tendencies, the Monroe, the Monroe Doctrine that's still in effect, that white supremacist policy in the Southern Hemisphere, and then you know, uh, with them trying trying to push us into yet another war while continuing in Afghanistan in Iraq, which if something pop off in Iran means something popping off in Iraq, because Iraqis already then told you so, yeah plenty of reasons uh, that many of us should be paying attention to this activity area. So those are some of the things. There's also some other stories that we won't spend a whole lot of time uh, pontificating on. But the main one, the first one that I want to tackle, I feel is very important, and uh, is this Supreme Court is it's being framed that the Supreme Court just handed Republicans a huge political victory on partisan gerrymandering. At least that's how CNN, um, this headline, is framing it. But um, right off, I know that things like this um, is why some people don't participate in the people activity area politics. They will use the political war maneuvering of battlefield moves that happen over the centuries. Uh, this is just how politics work. Um, but they use that to say the system, the system is rigged because of unfavorable decision, which really is a neutral decision with the Supreme Court basically saying that um, saying that federal courts will not no longer get involved in hearing cases 
from state courts on prison on on political gerrymandering. Uh, but what they mean is writing or creating political districts, drawing up the voter districts. What district you gonna be in? And in the South, they have um, broken up like because again, we still have segregation but it's segregation by choice some of it is also segregation because of economics but we still have huge pockets of black people who who live together um geographically and then they will mess up or split up those communities and make them part of a different uh district and then that dilutes their their uh representation in in Congress or even the Senate um, where they will have someone, more likely someone who looks like them if all those black voters were kept in that one district. So, um, you know, it, it, it the, what the Supreme Court is saying is that this is a matter for state courts. This is a state's rights issue is basically what they're saying. And even if you are showing that, that um, you know, Republican Party is drawing these uh, districts to dilute the black vote for racist reasons or to dilute the Hispanic vote for any, any other, you know, that's right. We're not weighing in on that no more. That's what they're saying. So what's the flip side of that? Because Democrats also, when they take over a state legislator, have a majority, especially like here in North Carolina, Republicans have have had for years um, um, a majority in both houses of Congress, um, excuse me, both houses, the Senate, the state Senate and the state House, and had Republican governors, although they will alternate with a Democrat, it's a Democrat in there now. But whenever Democrats in any state are shown to have that majority, they will then go back and redraw the districts. So it's really neutral. It's whoever turns out to vote, and that's the key. How We had to ask questions. We this the problem. What's the strategy to try to counter this? Well, you can counter this with a higher turnout. It's what you cost. Most people don't vote. Let me, I, I should bring this up because I like to share facts. Let me Google something right quick. What is the percentage of voter turnout in America. And that, of course, is going to be based on those eligible to vote. Voter turnout in the 2010 midterms was 41.8%. In 2014, it was 36.7%, the lowest in 72 years. But voter turnout in midterm elections still pairs in comparison to years when Americans are voting for president. In 2016, for example, turnout was 60.1%. And in 2012, that was Obama's re-election, it was just 58 Point six percent. Now, higher turnout. Higher turnout. And again, these this is one of those cases that people look at and say, see, this is why I don't vote. Because it's rigged anyway. And they don't think of, okay, they don't think of it as you on the chessboard and this the move that your opponent just made. So let me sit over here and think about it because this ain't checkers. This chess. 
So let me sit and think about and contemplate which moves I have available through this avenue or this tool or that tool and let me plot, plot the most um, uh, effective move I should make now. So when on average you have less than a majority of people turning out, that again, that's how you have minority rule. That's how you have minority rule. Not mob rule, but minority rule. And since the minority of voters who usually decide these things are predominantly white, then that's why they control the area of people uh, uh, activity called politics and therefore control everything else in that state or on the federal level. So how do you combat that? Not with cynicism, but with an increased uh, commitment to making the right strategy to counter it. So that means you got to bring new voters in the fold. That might mean you have to run candidates. It could also mean, and I was thinking about this earlier and I pontificated over it over the years on this. It's probably been a long, long time since I talked about this. We hear these Republicans talking about they the party of Lincoln when they're not. They're the party of Reagan. Um, and, and, you know, if you want to talk about being bipartisan and working with racists and segregationists, you know, they also the party of Andrew uh, Johnson or Jackson. But how, how about infiltrating? And I got this from, I would, in North Carolina, we have the ability to pick whatever ballot, no matter uh, uh, how we're registered, uh, uh, if we're unaffiliated, I believe, but even if we're a Democrat, I'm not sure, um, or or on that paper as Republican. I'm not saying we do pay in members to the Democratic Party or any of these parties, but you sometimes have to choose something because that's how the process is right now. So you may, but here we, we can identify as unaffiliated as well, but we can, North Carolina voters have a right to choose what primary. They can't vote in both, but they could choose the Democratic ballot or the, um, or if there's another party, um, like the, let's say, Libertarian Party or Green Party, we can choose their ballot to vote in their primaries or uh, to decide who the candidate is coming out. So I, I would, I was thinking, okay, let's shake up the Republican Party doing a primary and support uh, Republicans um, who are are less racist, who may have it right on certain issues that would impact. Our community, I'm talking about black voter strategy, um, but also what, what about running candidate, running candidates that's going to reclaim the Republican Party as the party of abolitionists? Because they're not the party of abolitionists. And so when they say they're the party of Lincoln, they're they talking about, they know Lincoln is linked to slavery, which was never abolished. Lincoln, Lincoln's great compromise in the North, I should say, great compromise with their Southern brothers and sisters to allow them to keep uh, practicing slavery. But that's why Republicans will say, oh, we're the party of Lincoln. We're the party of Reconstruction. You have more black Republicans. Uh, back then, and black people voted Republicans back then against the Democrats. But, but you know, but you're not the party of of Douglas, of Frederick Douglas, who was very key in founding that party um, and its abolitionist platform. So they are far from uh, abolitionists. 
So since we know slavery was never abolished, but see, we don't get we don't get black or white people or Hispanic people uh, or whoever uh, joins the Republican Party to run in 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 their um, run for office under that label. We don't get the Frederick Douglass Republicans. We don't get them. Who do we get? We get the Tim Scotts. Um, Tim Scott don't support reparations. Tim Scott is more like the party of Reagan, the party of Nixon, those type of Republicans. So um, just talking strategy. I ain't mean to go go down that tangent. Um, now, I had said I was going to talk about Biden and um, the debates actually give us an opportunity uh, to delve deeper into, because I don't understand this. This is something I put out on Twitter. Let me see, what time is it? Okay. Um, Joe, I was reading this article that said, it was talking about a poll that says that Joe Biden's lead among Democrats is deport, disproportionately relying on black voters, black people who vote, who they poll, or maybe they don't even vote. Who knows? Um, um, <laughs> since what the data says, most people don't vote, but they're asked their opinion and they say that they uh, express a preference for Biden. And I'm like, what is that based on? That's what he's relying on. A man who reached across the aisle to help racists push their agenda in fighting against court-ordered desegregation because it violated the Constitution, it was Jim Crow race-based laws. So he he was helping them uh, to do that. And I don't understand why these black people were his support from these black voters who are supposed to be more sensitive to racial matters and issues than others. Is it because a lack of information? Maybe they don't watch the debates. Maybe they don't tune in to political shows every day or programming every day. Maybe they only get their programming from the mainstream media. For whatever reason, you know, they're they're not informed. And when you're not informed, you know, that's that's saying that I'm ignorant about this candidate. Or is it because of lack of black self-respect? Because I don't have any respect for any black person or any white person for that matter that would compromise so-called principles that they hold dear and work with a racist on anything to, uh, to push a racist agenda, a racist policy. That's unjust. That's why I don't I don't buy into these emotional arguments, these logical fallacies about integration is about black folks wanting to because uh, uh, they think the white man ice colder. Well, you know what? In the, in the area of education, it is colder. <laughs> okay, let's look at the facts here. You don't try to train people to be white supremacists, to be in control of the planet by depriving them of resources at any kind of school. You want to make sure they they have the best, everything that they need to facilitate their intellectual growth. If you don't want a people 
to exceed in that area. Guess what? You're going to, even though they're paying taxes to you, you're going to take that money and you're going to redirect it to that white-only school because you're training white supremacists and, and you're going to give crumbs, do the bare minimum for these black schools. So I don't have any kind of respect for anyone that will work with evil people like that. Pushing injustice. Because you know, you can't be on the fence on certain just on, on issues. And then again getting into Biden. See, that's what he was doing with the crime bill. And when he was bragging about being the most, we're gonna be tougher than the Republicans on crime. Let me come out with this draconian pro-slavery bill. And we're going to lock them up, as he said. Lock them up. Who did he work with? Reach across the aisle, but to Republicans. You had a majority Republican Congress during most of Clinton's administration. So there you had Joe in the Senate. I, 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 I shouldn't name call, but I do. I have hashtagged him Jim Crow Joe. That's not me really name calling him. It's, it's, just, um, it's just a term that explains who he is. And the things he's fought for, which has been Jim Crow. So I call him hashtag Jim Crow Joe. But who did he work with, reach across the aisle? Whose personal space was he invading and whispering in their ear on the Republican side to pass the crime bill? Legislation that he authored, which disproportionately impacted the black communities. So this is, this is um, I don't understand, except for it has to be a lack of information. I don't want to believe it's a lack of black self-respect because these people that's being asked these questions over the phone or in the mall or, or wherever the poll taker um, has found them, these people ain't being paid by Joe Biden. Simone Sanders and those other black people working on his staff being paid by him so that he can racially showcase them as some kind of quote unquote symbol of black support and Simone Sanders tried to spin some of the stuff he said when he, you know we we heard it from him Simone we don't need buckets of words from you to try we I know that's what you get paid to do, Simone Sanders. That's, you know, you getting your butter biscuits to take care of you and yours. And, you know, your principles, your guiding principles have somehow allowed you to work with a man that you know is identical. Not only work for, but, you know, to, to explain away his racism, to try to minimize his racism. That's lack of self-black respect right there. So I'm not going to say that on, let's say, the 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 little church lady who only knows of Biden being Barack Obama's vice president and, you know, still wasn't this person who is really into politics, you know, that really are getting into the meat and, and watching every day of what they passing. Uh, what legislation being proposed, what impact is it going to have. Some people are just not into it that way. Some people don't have time because they're too busy out here struggling to survive. 
So, you know, they have a pot, they made a mental positive connection of Obama being the first, first African American president. That symbolism, symbolism is real strong. That's why it's used a lot in religion. Um, that's why it's used a lot in in media and what have you. So, you know, um, they see Obama, they have pride in Obama. Biden was there with Obama. So, okay, I don't really know what Ob Biden was doing in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in 2000s, but I do know that he was a black man's vice president and why would that black man pick a racist you know I, I i can't understand the logic for a person who isn't deeply paying attention to politics so i'm not going to say that's a lack of self uh black self-respect i'm gonna just say that's a lack of information that's what it is but simone sanders oh man for example this is what she said i tell you what let me see. We're coming up on the top of the hour. Um, before I jump into that, I, I really didn't spend a lot of time on the bipartisan, uh, uh, excuse me, the racial gerrymandering in the Supreme Court saying that, hey, you can't bring these kind of cases to the federal court no more. That also means simply means that it's going to be decided in the states. Well, who who are these judges? How did they get appointed? How did they get, are they elected? See, politics matter. Because then, that's where those cases are going to be decided. Now, here, people have been citing North Carolina because uh, the Supreme, the federal courts had been ruling on the side of those who brought suit against the state of North Carolina for, for racially, uh, with a uh, Politically gerrymandering districts with the racist intent to dilute the black vote. Federal courts had already ruled on side with the plaintiffs and against the Republicans. So now, but uh, it kept getting appealed up the, up the courts. And so now the court's saying, the Supreme Court, federal court, is saying, look, this ain't our business. The states clearly had a right. The Constitution, legislatures say that uh, even the state legislatures say that they, the states can write their own political districts. So whoever's in power, whoever's in charge, that's who gets to write it. And that could go either way. Again, that's, that can be determined by turnout. But at the Supreme, at the state level, I have to look up what North Carolina's um, Supreme court ruled on this because I got to imagine it was brought in the state court first. But then with a Democratic senator, and I don't know what he might do. I don't know what, what he might do. I I think the evidence shows that he's against the uh, racially gerrymandered maps here in North Carolina. So he, since he is the uh, uh, executive, in the executive branch, he can choose and controls the judicial Meaning the attorney general and what and the law, and what they're going to argue to defend the law in court, or they can also choose to no longer defend it. 
and then just forfeit whatever. So that gerrymandering can still, you know, let me just put it this way. The final word on that battle at the state level is not over. So I'm, I'm just trying to, for people who participate in that area of people activity, to not get down in the dumps and say, oh, they just handed them, you know, the key to victory uh, for a thousand years or a hundred years. Uh, They're going to be controlling this state. No, 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 no. No, what warriors do. What what soldiers do, you know, um, and I hate to be using the war met- metaphors, but what people do is plot their next move. Okay, my opponent just made this good move on the chessboard. Man, I got to think about that. I didn't see that one coming. I didn't. Uh, let me see what what options do I have available to me, which is the best way to counter what they've just done to nullify that move they just made. So I just spent about an hour um, primarily talking about that. All right. So when I when I come back, we're really going to take a deep dive um, into this. The only other story that I will share with you um, before, and I'll let this story from uh, the Young Turks uh, division of, of them. Um, Trump is deporting soldiers' family. So th- let me lay this out for you. Now, Let me go ahead and open that up as well, and I'll close out this other stuff. The Trump administration is planning to scale back up. Let me stop that. Now, this is how they put it. Trump. This is how their editors chose the headline. Trump deporting soldiers' families. And let me give you some background on this. Um, Yeah, this is from the Young Turks. I thought it was from one of their affiliate stations. Um, But that's how they framed it. If I was their editor... This is how I would have framed it in the context of white supremacy. When helping spread white supremacy through war doesn't pay. And what I mean, some people, y'all might see that as being cold. Y'all might see that as being insensitive to these soldiers who have, who might themselves be uh, uh, not U.S. citizens yet, or even came here quote-unquote, illegally, but went to the recruiter's office, the Army recruiting office, or the Naval, or the Air Force, or or the Marines, and and volunteered to go spread white supremacy through the people activity area of war, and then, for your butter biscuits in exchange, we, if you got family in the United States, not your cousins, not your uncles and your, your aunts, you know, um, no, just for your immediate family, just for your mother and your father, you know, uh, we won't deport them. We'll just put them, we're going to process them, but we're going to put them on parole. And long as you out, as long as you in Afghanistan, as long as you in Iraq, as long as you on that ship pointing missiles at Iran or China or North Korea or wherever, as long as you in that tank in Europe, at the at the um, Soviet border, we're going to give your family members a pass. We're going to give them a slave pass, meaning that they're going to have a piece of paper that they can show ICE that you ha- that I ain't in this program because my son or my father or my spouse is off fighting to spread white supremacy for USA Inc. 
That's that's what that's the cold hard truth of it. That's the truth that I'm finding some people don't want to accept. And they might see me as being insensitive uh, to their plight, but I'm just being truthful and honest. You may not see it as I do, but that's how I see it. You know, and I feel like I can speak on it because I've done that. I've been there. I got the butter biscuits called the GI Bill to participate in the Gulf War. I didn't look at it that way as a twenty, a young 20-something-year-old whose brain hadn't fully developed. Because they say, you know, your brain don't stop physically growing until you're 26. And I imagine it takes longer um, and of course, you know, individuals can be different, but it takes longer for a person to mature. It certainly took me longer than 26 years to, to mature beyond some foolishness or some beliefs I held at, at that time. So that's the butter biscuits that I accepted and I can speak on that because I've been there. I've done that. I'm a veteran, a U.S., as they call us, U.S. veterans. So I'm just, I don't want to give you, I mean, I feel for the human being and the circumstance that they've been put in, but hopefully this will be a deterrent to anyone in any other country, because I did basic training where even uh, uh, this brother from the Trinidad and a couple of other brothers from the Caribbean to get some butter biscuits, I'm, you know, I'm, maybe this will lead to less non-white people and people who are anti-war. Maybe this will uh, uh, show them that, see, white supremacists don't keep their word because Trump is ending this program. So it's not just Trump. Even though uh, it, it's a, everybody that supports that policy. He, he has some outside support, but because... ICE is under the executive branch and control of the executive branch and all and the, and the immigration enforcement and all of that is under the executive branch. That's why he can do the things that, that he's, he, he's doing. He has that authority. Whether we like it or not, he has that authority. Don't take that as meaning that you accept his authority because we are rebellious people who stand for justice and not on the side of injustice and, and racist. So I'm going to let this play um, and and then roll straight into a break. And then I'm going to jump into a couple of these articles. Here's one. Biden was more than civil with segregationists. He was an ally. Now, they wasn't, don't get it twisted. He wasn't getting them to support any kind of legislation that was going to produce uh, justice, especially if it had to do with civil rights, a.k.a. racism. Um, no, he was an ally in that he was trying to help them get their bills passed. He was their ally. So uh, Joe Biden is winning black voters, but will it last? Is an article from the Vox. We'll break that down during the second hour. Joe Biden didn't just compromise with segregationists. He fought for their calls in schools, experts say. I believe that's the article where I'm going to get some data from that shows that. And these are the facts. These are just it's the data. We got to detach ourselves from the emotional and be analytical. Like I said, I still would prefer to have stayed in my black school, um, CO Elementary, 
because to be honest with you, I, that that school was kind of well maintained, great teachers. Um, um, I had actually came in second place, got beat by a woman that time too, or uh, or a girl. And um, um, what was I in the fifth grade or something? And we had to write a um, scary story, a horror uh, story, not just a story, but a book. And um, I, I came in second place. We had a great school. I, I'm not gonna lie, but that was not the nor that was not the average experience of all black children in Detroit. Okay, so but the data does show that those who will go to better facilities that are well funded have better out academic outcomes and success. So we'll get jump all into Joe Biden in that context when we come back. On the other side, you're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. This program airs Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, exclusively here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be back. Program that protects undocumented family members of... The Trump administration is planning to scale back a program that protects undocumented family members of active duty soldiers from being deported, according to attorneys who work with those individuals. So previously, well, let's give you the details from the attorneys first, and we'll give you the history of this program and why it is so reprehensible that the Trump administration is making the change that they are. Attorneys for military families with an undocumented relative say their clients have been told the parole in place program is being terminated, prompting them to scramble to apply for its protections before it comes to an end. One government lawyer had a message obtained by NPR that said, I would advise clients that if they're eligible for parole in place to submit it ASAP, wish there was better news to share. Big takeaway is that no group is safe any longer. So what is this program? Parole in place is designed to offer temporary relief from deportation for military families where a spouse or loved one came to the country illegally in order to allow troops to serve without fear that their families could be sent home while the service member is deployed. It's specifically- So let me stop it right there. See, it don't even cover their parents. It's just the spouse and if they have any children. So I just wanted to um, make an important note of that. It only covered their wife or their husband and any children they may have. But now um, Trump is rolling back, getting ready to terminate that program or roll it back, however words they choosing to describe it, to not take any more um, you know, applicants. So you got a bunch of them probably living on bases uh, that haven't even gotten asylum by way of, well, it's not even asylum, but haven't even, who are not on parole, but they on, they on military bases because their spouse is in the military. So I don't, I'm not using the term illegal immigrants as a derogatory term for, for human beings, but this is the political vernacular that they are described in or described as. And we also use the term undocumented immigrant or asylum seeker um, as well. But they're being housed on military basis. So I guess it will make it, um, if he abolishes this program, hey, they right there on the military base to be rounded up and put him to a concentration camp. So again, I must stress, that that non-white people working witting t- wittingly or unwittingly due to ignorance and the lack of information on the global system of white supremacy 
helping them to violently impose their will on the rest of the world to control those people's resources and their governments. Um, it doesn't always pay if you're a non-white person. So why do you participate? Why do you give your energy to it? Well, I know there's various reasons, but um, perhaps, um, you know, we need to start withholding our energy for certain things because they always break their word, don't they? allows military family members who have come to the country illegally and can't adjust their immigration status to stay in the U.S. temporarily. A spouse who overstayed a visa, for example, would not be protected under the program. So it does not provide protections in all cases. But the idea there is that if you are serving in the military, in active duty, the last thing you need on top of all the stress of serving in our forever wars around the globe is the idea that while you're abroad, your family member is going to be deported. And so, and I believe this program actually, oddly, was set up under George W. Bush. It didn't provide protection for everybody, but it was a good move. These people are serving, they're serving their country. Maybe we can cut their family a little bit of a break. And Donald Trump, as much as he loves to talk about how much he loves the military, he hates immigrants more. And so this change is happening right now. You ever see those videos? They're the biggest tearjerkers, I feel like, on social media. It'll be a mom who's mm -hmm. on active duty and she'll come to the school and surprise her kid. Mm -hmm. And it's obvious how big of a, a pain this is on this family. You know, they're without a major member of the family for so long and they're over and they're fighting for the country. And you could actually come home and your husband be deported. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah, yeah. Or be deported while you're abroad. Sacrifice, right. Yeah. So this term's. Um, Family values. Yeah. Uh, what about the children? Uh, support the troops. Hey, uh, uh, thank you for your service. But don't um, kneel during the anthem. <laughs> right. we, we throw these terms around and call ourselves the best country in the world. Donald Trump likes to talk about how he's rebuilding the military with dollars. But, um, but when, they, when they're overseas serving, they come home and then maybe their spouse isn't there anymore. Uh, what do we care about that anymore? Mm -hmm. These are all empty terms. It's empty rhetoric. Uh, the, the, the number of people, even when we send people off to fight, you know what else we say when we're talking? We don't we don't want to uh, send our troops into harm's way over your monetary, uh, uh, your what you want to make for your companies that paid you off. Uh, they said, well, they signed up for it. The degree of heartlessness and 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 dismissal that a lot of these politicians have towards our troops when they talk about how much they love them. Uh, is astronomical. We'll keep going through the whole thing over and over again. Hey, you know, um, we, we, if, as long as you're married to some dirty illegal immigrant, we don't care anymore. Mm. When is this going to become a, a, a sticking point? Yeah. When are we going to talk about this enough over and over and over again to the point where someone says, hey, let's not go into that war and someone says, how dare you hate America? It's just, it's written in our DNA now, but it's not written in our DNA to treat people right. right. It's so bizarre that we allow in most cases, it's the Republican Party. They have this reputation as supposedly supporting these different institutions, even though it is so contingent. Like they say they support the cops, for instance. Okay, but but if you're a cop and you you were like serving, you know, after 9/11 and you got cancer as a result of it, like Mitch McConnell is actively spinning in your face every single day. They don't support cops. They support cops who just killed an unarmed person. So in that limited case, they do support you. In the military, they say they support the military. They don't support the active members of the military. They support spending more money on the military. Yeah. Let me sketch a future of what being in the military is going to be like. You're going to return from serving in Afghanistan. You're going to return to the home where you used to have a family. They're all gone now. They've been deported. But you can console yourself with the fact that we have the F-35. 
Let's see if that makes your life any better. That is how they support the military. They support the dollars spent on the military because that money goes to military contractors. The actual people, they don't care about you at all. How many people in the military fly F-35 fighter jets? How many uh, of them, I mean, it's not gonna be a ton. How many of them use the most high-tech equipment? What percentage of our military that he likes to talk about, all the fun things and toys that he wants to buy for them, actually goes to what they need and what they're doing? I'm sure it's a significant amount for things that they need to do other things. But what he likes to talk about is the things that uh, that like to pop up and make him look better. We remember when he first came in office, this president wanted to have a military parade because it's really cool. And I can put my face on the side of a tank and make everyone march with locked knees and put one arm up and have the bayonets over their shoulders. That's the picture that was in his head. And we'll see what happens on the 4th because he's planning something like that already. Yeah. That's the fun part. That's rebuilding the military for his, in his own image because yeah. he has this, this God complex. On the go? Six Don't worry, six. we got you covered. Quarry. Don't let the church shoes fool you, man. All right. You know what I mean?
Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Thank, I thank the uh, gentleman for yielding. Mr. Speaker, I rise in strong opposition to the McCullough Amendment and, in fact, in strong opposition to this so-called crime prevention bill. Mr. Speaker, let us be honest. This is not a crime prevention bill. This is a punishment bill, a retribution bill, a vengeance bill. All over the industrialized world now, Countries are saying, let us put an end to state murder, let us stop capital punishment, but here what we're talking about is more and more capital punishment. What we're discussing now is an issue where some of our friends are saying, we're not getting tough enough on the criminals. But my friends, we have the highest percentage of people in America in jail per capita of any industrialized nation on earth. We've beaten South Africa. We've beaten the Soviet Union. What do we have to do? Put half the country behind bars? Mr. Speaker, instead of talking about punishment and vengeance, let us have the courage to talk about the real issue. How do we get to the root causes of crime? How do we stop crime, which is in fact a very, very serious problem in this country? And, Mr. Speaker, I've got a problem. I've got a problem with a president and a Congress which allows five million children to go hungry, two million people to sleep out on the streets, cities to become breeding grounds for drugs and violence. And they say, we're getting tough on crime. If you want to get tough on crime, let's deal with the causes of crime. Let's demand that every man, woman, and child in this country have a decent opportunity and a decent standard of living. Let's not keep putting poor people into jail and disproportionately punishing blacks. Time of the gentleman has expired. There was Bernie Sanders yelling into the microphone. So um, welcome back to BTR News. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting from the enemy lines of USA Inc. There was Bernie Sanders yelling about the racism, um, yelling about poverty, yelling about racism with black people being targeted for neo-slavery, okay? Because the 13th Amendment never abolished slavery, and the way that you can get blacks back into slavery is convict them of a crime by a jury that doesn't have their peers, the judges, don't look like them. They're not there to enforce justice. They're there to enforce slavery. 
and, and uphold the means by way we could get these black people back into slavery. So that's Bernie Sanders yelling. And I'm speaking of the criticism that he has received at the last night's Democratic debate on social media by white and black uh, uh, folks. All of them claim to um, say they represent Democrats or vote Democrat. That's their allegiance. So that, you know, Bernie Sanders has been yelling for 40-something years about these very issues and, and what's, what's, um, what's timely about me playing that track of him yelling and, and being passionate about those things that he cares about and speaking truth to the powers that be that in that case was who? Bill Clinton. He said a president in the Congress who was in Congress in, in 1991 pushing the crime bill that guess who authored the crime bill? Joe Biden. Joe Biden. So again, I don't think it's a lack of black self-respect that right now it's still very early that whoever these black voters or uh, black people they called African Americans to, to ask them questions about who they will most likely vote for in the Democratic primary and they say Joe Biden it's not, I don't think it's a lack of self black respect I think it's a lack of information about who Joe Biden is so that was Bernie Sanders yelling about what Joe Biden and his allies, his Republican allies, because the House was under the control of Newt Gingrich at the time, because the Republicans had control of Congress. But that that represents Joe Biden, another example of Joe Biden reaching across that aisle to work with racists to enact racist policies to enact unjust policies and I don't care how Simone wants to spin it I don't care how Joe Biden wants to spin it that's just the truth of the matter now what about Joe Biden yelling and trying to push back against accurate truthful statements made about him reaching across the aisle to coddle racists and work with racists to pass racist or uphold racist activity in the people activity area of education. This is a clip from last night's Democratic debate and the exchange between Senator Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend, or a coworker who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm gonna now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist, and I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. 
But I also believe, and it's personal, and it, I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a, a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. Senator Harris, thank you. Vice President Biden, you have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President Biden. mischaracterization my position across the board. I do not praise racist. That is not true. Number one. Number two, if we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out and I left a good law firm to become a public defender when in fact, when in fact, when in fact my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. Number one. Now, number two, as the U.S. as excuse me, as the uh, uh, vice president of the United States, I work with a man who, in fact, we worked very hard to see to it we dealt with these issues in a major, major way. The fact is that, in terms of busing, the busing I never you would have been able to go to school the same exact way because it was a local decision made by your city council. That's fine. That's one of the things I argued for that we should not be we should be breaking down these lines. Okay, I, I had to stop it there because this is like a four-minute uh, clip. But listen, when he said that, you know what? In, when he said that was a city council decision, what he now think about it in 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 the context of history and racist segregation. I immediately thought the white council, the white city council. I, I forget the name of the exact name of this council. It was called the White Council, the White Citizens Council. That's it. The White Citizens Council. So if these white citizens don't want your, want their pristine white children going to school with some dirty Negroes, um, it's in their right to keep those dirty Negroes in those dirty, dilapidated schools with no resources or very little resources with teachers who experience the same dilapidated underfunded resources, then it's their right. It's the right of the White Citizens Council. That's what I thought, because I, I, I tend to think along um, linear, uh, historically li linear. That's what that said to me. He's talking about the rights of the White Citizens Council, and he was against it and what have you. So he was also what he did, what I've heard no one touch upon, is he created by working with them, working with these segregationists, what he created was an environment where black children 
who, whether their parents wanted them to or not, but to uphold the law, they chose to, instead of funding black schools and giving them all the resources, building new buildings, new equipment and all that, they was like, okay, we're just going to bust a certain portion of them to the white schools, to the better schools, and, and, and then we'll call that, we'll be meeting the bare minimum. Okay, and and so those white parents looking at people like Biden, Jesse Hams, and them other people that Biden was proud to work with and talking about they never call me boy, they just call me son, you know. The stuff Cory Booker got into him, that created a hostile environment, an unsafe environment for these black children to the point that they either had to have police on, on campus to escort them, to be on hand. I'm thinking about my late aunt whose funeral I just recently attended in Detroit, being a taken from a good school, Reed High was the name of the school they was going to. It was a good black school again. It was not representative of the circumstances of black people all across the United States in impoverished areas, especially urban areas. We live in a rural uh, county. Has a, a rich history of actually a, a mixed population. So, um, but she was forced to be the first one to go to Mount Holly High School, which was a junior high by the time I moved back down from Detroit and uh, attended there. But forced to go there. And she told me when she would come down to the homestead from Detroit to visit and me and her be drinking coffee sitting outside on the back porch or something and she was telling me how them white kids used to terrorize her there. Even at lunchtime, she had to sit with the teachers. A teacher had to sit with her because these little children was terrified of being terroristic, threatening her with violence. Now, that she had to suffer that that one year, but then the next year is when she had some black people come join her, and then they formed self-protection groups. She told me about them stories, how they would fight. My uncles would fight them and, and, and all of that. But this is the this this is the atmosphere that these politicians were creating. The atmosphere right for mob, racist mob violence. Now y'all can say that's in the past all you want to win and but when has he ever been held accountable? for these wrong positions since he's and he tried to invoke Obama there and I worked with Obama I worked in administration as vice president to undo a whole lot of harm well no I wouldn't call reducing the 100 to 1 crack cocaine uh, uh, disparity in sentencing that you created and you work with these these racists in the Republican Party in the Democratic Party to put in place in the first place, but oh, y'all reduced it to 18 to one. Oh, it's still a disparity. Now that anyone should be in jail for nonviolent victimless drug crimes. So I, 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 it's got to be a lack of information because if not for black support, according to this article I read, Joe Biden will be polling at the bottom 
he'd be down there with Miriam Williamson, who actually brought up race last night and has been a staunch reparation supporter. So when when Kamala Harris talks about being that second generation, I was first generation. I don't think she was second generation. It, it depends. In California, I was in Michigan. So, yeah. But she claimed to be, you know, she said she was in that second generation. I don't know that much about the history of California. I, we do hear a lot about the stuff that went on in the South, in northern cities like Boston. There's a famous picture of a white racist with the American flag attacking, attacking a a, a black man and hitting him in the stomach with it over segregation. It's, it's, it's just so I don't know what it was like in California, but I do know the atmosphere um, that was around the country. Joe Biden needs to be held accountable for that. And since he, what has he done since he left um, Obama's administration? What has he done? But make millions of dollars. And that's going to bring us to another issue. Well, before I do that, Joe Biden is winning black voters. Polling Democratic debates. So, so let me go to this article by the Vox, published on Vox.com by P.R. Lockhart. As of now, the former vice president has a big lead with a crucial Democratic voting bloc, but in a field with plenty of options that support is far from permanent. So the question is, Joe Biden is winning black voters, but will it last? Uh, this week's 2020 uh, Democratic primary debates mark the first time that candidates will directly interact with one another in a largely unscripted environment. For Vice President Joe Biden, the base arrive as the candidate continues to deal with a number of controversies to, that center on how he does and oftentimes does not talk about race. Collectively, these controversies have raised questions about the stability of his support among black voters. They include Biden's comments about working with segregationist senators, his support and role shepherding the passage of the 1994 crime bill and his opposition to busing in Delaware in 1970s. And they fuel concerns that despite his record on other civil rights issues and his close ties with black communities and places like South Carolina. Look, I don't know what they call uh, close ties with black communities in South Carolina. I don't think that Joe Biden has a vacation home anywhere in South Carolina that he spends summers with his families in the black community, uh, helping them, you know, through nonprofits or, or other uh, organizations, raise funds to raise their standard of living or to get funding for their dilapidated schools or, uh, no. So what, what do they mean by close ties to black communities in places like South Carolina? Biden is out of step with the portion of the Democratic Party electorate that has moved to the left on matters of racial justice due to the continued work and prominence of black activists and a resultant shift in attitudes among white liberals and for black voters who account for much of Biden's base at this 
quote, very early stage of the 2020 primary, the question is if these issues and Biden's at times limited efforts to respond to them will lead to him losing support among a key demographic. It's not just a key demographic. It's the key demographic. Now, I know, and we'll get to the article later, that he's depending on the 1% to fund his campaign. And he said some stuff that was very similar to Mitt Romney's a secret speech to donors about the 47%. Okay? So, um, it says, but in a primary that, let me see, Biden continues to be well out in front of a large and strict, still growing primary field and black voters are a large part of why. It's the only reason why. It's the only reason. But in a primary that already has several candidates fighting for this group, including two black senators and other politicians with race conscious policies, Biden lead at this point is far from indestructible. Well, if I can do half of what I did to inform people about Hillary Clinton's record, well, maybe just enough of you, just enough of you will not vote for Biden in these primaries. So um, we don't know what the impact was informing people about Hillary Clinton, who was very similar to the uh, uh, cloth cut uh, that Biden's cut. But just enough did not support her to cause her to lose the general election. I'm talking black voters. I'm just uh, uh, speaking back to what Malcolm X said about black voters uh, having to decide and vote in people activity area politics. And I have, and about us needing to do, to become more politically mature, to take advantage of that strategic uh, position, but we have not. And it's many, many reasons I could do an hour's worth of commentary um, on, but I'm not. But again, I refuse to believe that these black that the majority of black voters are that intellectually immature, that politically immature that they're basing their support solely on Biden's proximity to Obama. So um, I'm just going to chalk it up to lack of information. I I don't want to believe the worst about these people. And there's always going to be uninformed people for various reasons. It goes on to say, if anything, the 2020 election cycle thus far shows something that black journalists, political strategists, and activists have long argued that black voters, even as they are the most loyal and consistent Democratic Party voters, are not a monolithic group. Meaning we'll split our vote. We'll vote third party. We'll vote in somebody else's primary. So they're right. They're right. But, man, this is why Malcolm X was pushing so hard for black unity and getting black folks to set aside their religious differences, their whatever differences in the people activity area politics. We need to be united. It's what he was working towards. And we need to reach out to African brothers and sisters in in those nations and heads of state so that they can, we can, um, uh, work with them or have a voice, somebody, another country speaking for the African-Americans issue 
on the international stage as they have per, uh, member seats in the United Nations. African Americans don't. So it says, um, it go, it says, even as they're the most loyal and consistent Democratic Party voters, in a year when voters have so many options, it's possible they may not line up behind a single candidate as strongly as they have in recent years instead of spreading out some support among a handful of candidates. Um, it goes on to talk about he still has support but faces several controversies. And, and we're, we've already covered some of that. We will cover more. But I need to take a station identification break. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News. We'll be back on the other side. Show some self-black respect, okay? Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Now, let's move on to this other article. Um, well, let me check this. Um, you see, Biden was more civil. Let me uh, close that. Biden was more civil with segregationists. He, he was more than civil with them, mean as he's tried to spin it and portray it. He was an ally. And tell you my board is starting to my browser is starting to lock up and I need to close some of this stuff it's just the nature of how computers work so y'all bear with me the federalist.com the federalist.com waiting on this article um, to load up now it's starting to load up it probably affected my audio if it did I apologize the podcast should be fine however uh, Biden was more than civil. This is from the federalist.com. Senator Biden may not have been a racist. Okay, we, we don't have to go there. Um, I understand why Kamala Harris didn't call him a racist. Because um, he's a little bit more, he's a little bit more codified than Trump. It's easy to call Trump a racist. Um, but, you know, so I understand people being codified not calling them racist. But I don't have to be codified on this program. And I say the evidence suggests that it, uh, racism is as racism does. So, therefore, racist is as a, a racist does. Presidential hopeful Joe Biden got himself into trouble this week, defending his relationship with pro-segregationist senators James O. Eastland of Mississippi and Herman Talmadge of Georgia at New York fundraisers. At least there was some civility the former vice president explained. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything, We got, th- but we got things done. Uh, Biden was attempting to liken contemporary Republicans to 1970s era Southern racist Democrats while also highlighting, highlighting his history of bipartisan compromise. Although his comments were a political miscalculation, nowhere was the former vice president waxing nostalgic nor finally remembering either of those lawmakers in his speech despite the contentions of progressives. Uh, presidential candidates and some in the media. So David Harsany, or uh, however you pronounce this man's name, from the right-leaning Republican, uh, conservative-leaning, I should say, the Federalist, um, seems to be, um, you know, whitewashing and saying, no, he's not a racist. But anyway, um, but he is calling the man, a, he did more than just work with them, but he was an ally. 
He said, it's fair to point out that the historic record shows Biden was far more than merely civil with segregationists. His early interactions can be more accurately described as obsequ... Oh, let me see. Let me pull this word up. I hope it don't lock me up, man, so I can get the proper pronunciation. It means obedient or attentive to an excessive or servile degree, meaning he was servile. Obsequious. Obsequious is how you pronounce that. Um, so he was catering to these races. Biden hadn't negotiated with political rivals to push bipartisan policy. He had worked with members of his own party run by men who had placed him in positions of power on issues they agreed on. Judging from the Senate transcripts and interviews of the time, it's clear that Biden was an all-star opportunist. After watching the former Delaware senator shed 50 years of positions in the past few years, this should come as no surprise. In 1973, Democratic Party leadership was teeming with unsavory Southern senators. If a freshman like Biden, who in 1974 Time Magazine profile admitted to being compulsively ambitious, wanted a plum committee position, he would be compelled to approach someone like J. William Fulbright, chairman of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, a segregationist and anti-Semite who would later become a mentor to the Clintons. Um, so, so that means that he he had to cozy up to these people. He had to show them, oh, hey, I'm not, hey, we friends, man. Do you know I'm white? You white? We can work together on some stuff. Why well, I may not be able to go all the way with you on that? Um, I, I, you know, I'll go with you on this. And and hey, since I'm I'm gonna back you on this, how about giving me this powerful appointment? As a freshman senator, and and so he willing and dealing, making will he was willing and dealing with racists to get butter biscuits from racists for himself. That's Biden. That was Biden. And if Biden wanted to be on the Judiciary Committee, he would have to get along with Eastland, the voice of the White South, who was chairing President Pro Tem of the Senate. The stories about their chummy relationship aren't new. Biden has been repeating them for decades. Eastland was particularly anxious to mentor young members. J. Lee Annis notes in his book, Big Jim Eastland, the godfather of Mississippi. One favorite over the last term, was Joe Biden. One favorite over the last term was Joe Biden, who then was best known for having lost his wife and young daughter in an automobile accident. So they're saying that these racists mentored. He was he was a mentee of a racist mentor. That's what it's saying here. Eastland took an interest in Biden because the young senator shared his position on busing one of the most contentious racial policy fights of the early 1970s. It was during this time that busing had turned working class, union heavy white areas like South Boston, the kind of district that launched Biden's political career in the war zones. See, that, that's what I was talking about earlier. In creating the conditions where black children were being terrorized. At the time, there was intense public disapproval of busing. According to the New York Times, the 1974 Gallup poll, for example, only 15% of whites favored the policy and 75% were against. And let me just talk about how blessed I am personally. When I was bused in elementary school to a white school on the other side of Detroit, there were no 
people out there protesting. There was no cameras. There was, we just went to school. And, and just judging off of the, um, you know, when they took us out to the schoolyard to play during recess, it was probably about 20% of us was black. So we, of course, naturally all congregated together and, and played with each other, but played with other people as well. So, again, just looking back in ways that I have not suffered um, like other black people have suffered, um, I was blessed not to be subjected to that terrorism. Uh, let me move on. Um, I'm going to just leave it there. Y'all can read the rest of this this article. It's, it's a very, very long article. Um, this is coming from a conservative, from a white-wing, conservative-leaning website. And um, providing the receipts on Joe Biden being more than just civil with races, but was an actual ally and in, in actual mentee was adopted by these racist white senators. I imagine a lot of racist jokes was told behind scenes and in their offices and Joe Biden be back there slapping hands and slapping his knee, laughing right along with him because he built a relationship with them in order to get appointments. This is Joe Biden, people. And you're going to reward him, his behavior over the years by giving him the most powerful position on the planet. Uh, let me see. Joe Biden didn't com just compromise with segregation as he fought for their cause in schools, experts says. That comes to you from NBC News. Now, I think this is the article because we had to fight. We don't necessarily had to fight misinformation, but when we uh, had a capacity to speak to an audience, we must speak out against logical uh, fallacies, illogical fallacies. And um, there has been some benefit to removing racial segregation. I would have to say I benefited from it just based on my grades, just based on my test scores. And I don't know if I, I, I really can't say because I could have been blessed to go to um, a district, a black school that did have those resources if it had been in a middle-class black neighborhood. But if I'd have been born in in the inner city or or in a oh man, it, it it just I'm I'm serious. It, it it comes down to a roll of the dice. What zip code you born in? I'm thinking of the black mom who did five years in prison. In prison right now, she was homeless, but because she lived, she was using a homeless shelter in one zip code or school district, but wanted her child to go to the better school district, they put her in jail for that, said she was stealing. Just a homeless woman. But yet, the people who've been indicted for bribing people to get into, uh, what is it, UCLA, or was it Southern Cal, USC, with the uh, college bribery scandal. Some of them have not gotten no jail time, or just a year, or probation. This black woman, got five years, homeless black woman, for sending her child to the district that had the better resources, the best environment for her son to thrive. It wasn't because white people's ice is colder, although when we talk about the education system, they schools are better equipped, better funded, 
where it's predominantly, and it's not even their schools. It's my school too, and my mama is paying taxes, or my dad is paying taxes, or my brother's paying taxes. So, it's not about it's not about somebody just want to snuggle up to white people. No, it's about the principle of the matter of if it's racist, if it's unjust policy, why would I support it? Especially if it's harming my people. And that's another logical fallacy that, that people um, have picked up from people with an agenda to recruit them to whatever they're doing. But let, let, let me move on. I'm, I, I need, let me see if I could get to that part where it was talking about the study it's talking about him working with Jesse Ham, Strom Thurman. I know particularly about them two because I'm in North Carolina. Strom was in South. Helms was in North Carolina. Uh, a nasty old racist. And he was working with those two. And they were Republicans. The other two races he was working for were Democrats. Let me see. Let me read this section. In 1975, Biden was representing a state where one of the first major urban school desegregation plans had been ordered by a court. Many white parents in the Wilmington area were angry. They turned into a mob, man, ready to do violence to little black girls and boys. In response, Biden sponsored not just the bill limiting the court's power, but also an amendment to an appropriations bill that barred the federal government from withholding funds from schools that remained uh, racially segregated. The amendment went beyond the busing issue affecting school systems that effectively separated students by race, whether or not they used busing. Co-sponsors included segregationists, racists, Y'all won't use the word, but I will. Senators Jesse Helms, a Republican out of North Carolina, and Strom Thurmond, Republican out of South Carolina. The amendment passed the Senate on a 50 to 43 vote, including majorities of both Democrats and Republicans, because guess what? Racist, white supremacists work together. Biden was not alone among Northern Democrats who supported it in that group. 14 supported the amendment and 26 opposed it, according to the Congressional Quarterly. So, tell you. Now, here's, this, here's some data. A 1977 report on school desegregation by the Civil Rights Commission, a federal agency, described Biden's activities as stymieing school integration. Federal data analyzed by Johnson and other resource researchers shows that busing succeeded in narrowing the racial achievement gaps before frontal assaults and legislative maneuvers by Biden and others rendered it easier for districts under court order to be released from integration demands. So in other words, we don't need these black children in these all-white schools outperforming and doing better than little Johnny. Or little Becky. Because that's, that's seriously harming their belief in white supremacy. So you need to keep those black children all over there and not in public open competition, academic competition with black students. That's what they really was mad about. In addition to, you know, their views is looking at black people as dirty and nasty, the same they look at any non-white people, the same way they describing them immigrants, 
um, uh, or asylum seekers coming across the South being put into concentration camps now. Johnson reviewed the data on more than 10,000 students from this period who were studying, and I was among those students, who were studied for decades afterward. He found that black adults who spent the most time in integrated schools attained more education, completed college, maintained better health, and earned higher incomes than peers who, who spent less time or no time in integrated schools. All of this happened without any reduction in white student grades or outcomes, the data shows. And white adults who attended integrated schools reported a better understanding of issues affected by non-white Americans. So, the data is the data. And it, and it only makes sense. Let's just take race out of it. If I have a school that I'm not funding, that I'm not providing the equipment, all the basics that's needed to produce a successful academic outcome. If the environment, meaning the physical structure, is hazardous to their health, these children are not going to perform as well as the children in in the better school. The, the well-funded, well-maintained, healthy environment, meaning they not breathing in asbestos, they're not, you know, being exposed to lead paint and what have you, and, and, and not being exposed to, to roaches and rat feces, and, and yeah, not being able to go to the bathroom because that, that hallway been flooded out due to the heavy rains, that's something that would affect my girlfriend's son's school. And that was in, when was that? That was in uh, maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, let me see. Biden was particular, particularly effective in fighting integration because he did not use the overtly racist language of the segregationists. He warned of race mixing and, and black inferiority, Johnson said. St instead, Biden, along with centrists and liberals, talked about force busting, local control, and parents' rights. Yeah, the rights of that white citizens' council. So, uh, uh, again, it's got to be a lack of information of why Biden's the majority of Biden's support is black voters. <sighs> Gotta believe that these people are just, just don't know Biden. They just don't know Joe. They have no idea who Jim Crow Joe is. Well, I know who he is. Now, last thing I'm gonna leave you with this comes, this is wealth inequality. This is about crooked Wall Street or criminal Wall Street. Joe Biden recent. this is another uh, uh, controversy that just came up. Joe Biden promises rich donors he won't demonize the wealthy if elected president. No one's standard of living will change. Nothing would for fundamentally change, the former vice president said at a New York fundraiser on Tuesday. So that we, what is he saying? That the poll going to stay poll and you wealthy uh, uh, people are going to stay wealthy. 
nothing's going to change. I won't demonize you. I won't fight for policies that's going to redistribute the wealth in a fair and equitable manner by making you pay taxes and what have you. Um, I don't really, I know I talk about poverty. I don't even hear them talking about it. But anyway, because I don't pay Biden no attention. Um, but anyway, you know, I won't demonize you. I won't talk about taxing you to 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 fund these schools in these poor areas. I won't make you these companies you run uh, pay a higher minimum wage. I will do everything to keep things as is. That's what that means. How else you gonna describe that? That's a direct quote of him talking to a one percenters. No one standard of living will change. Nothing would fundamentally change. That's Biden. Former Vice President Joe Biden told a room full of well-heeled donors on Tuesday night that he would not demonize the rich if he's elected president in the 2020 election. I need you very badly, he told the group. Addressing the 100 or so guests at a fundraiser at the Swanky Carlisle Hotel in New York City, Biden said he gotten into hot soup with some of the people on my team on the Democratic side for his earlier comments about rich people being just as patriotic as poor people. That's not a joke, he said. I mean, we may not want to demonize anyone who has made money, and nobody's doing that and talking about wealthy inequality. Appearing to suggest that his tax plan would not include excessive taxes on the rich, Biden said, no one's standard of living change. That's the exact quote. No one's standard of living change. So he left out a word. If he's elected, the truth of the matter is you all, you all know, you all know when your gut what has to be done. We can disagree in the margins, but the truth of the matter is it's all within our wheelhouse and nobody has to be punished. No one's standard of living will change. Nothing would fundamentally change, he said. Now, a person showing no self-black respect because they're being paid to minimize or spin the truth of what this man just directly said to these rich people, this is his, his black spokesperson, Simone D. Sanders, this is how she's spinning that. Because he says this all the time. Because he is talking about them paying more and them not feeling it since they are so wealthy. Because folks knew this story was bogus because there are reporters at every one of his fundraisers to corroborate everything I just said. That's why. That makes no sense. How, how does that... That makes no sense, Simone. That makes no sense. Because he's talking about them paying more taxes when he's just telling them they're not going to pay more taxes. He just said not, no one standard of living will change. Nothing will fundamentally change. That's a lack of self, self-respect. Uh, that is not, mis, that's not, she's not a victim of misinformation or a victim of ignorance because she don't know this man's policies, positions, or what he said. Her job is to help him win. That's her job. That's what she get paid duckies to do. Not to stand on the side of justice or even on the side of truth. She's lying. He was telling the truth when he was speaking to white, wealthy donors. 
And I shouldn't assume all of them was white. Bob Johnson could have been up in there. Oprah could have been up in there. I don't know. But I know it was people with a lot of money that he was telling them that your standard of living's not going to change. Nothing's going to change. I know Bernie Sanders out there talking about raising your taxes so he can pay for free college for all and putting taxes on Wall Street, speculation, so that he can pay for health care or he can pay off student debt. But I'm here to tell you, nothing's going to fundamentally change if you just give me some of that wealth that you have over there so I can pay for a media machine and pay people like Simone Sanders to spin everything I say and to be dazzled and mesmerized and put voters under a spell. That's Joe Biden. All right. Thank you for tuning in to Black Talk Radio uh, News. I'll be back Monday with a broadcast. I will try to get on um, someone from the Black Congress. Um, they're not actual members of the Congress. I, I just don't have that familiarity with them, so I don't know the exact name. The Con Congress of Black Women, I believe, um, with the Respect Us campaign, or I'm, I might be able to get Bob Law on, um, but I know I can get uh, Brother Quabiner to come on about this ordinance or this resolution passed by the City Council in uh, New York um, about obscene music on local airways that are licensed by the FCC, meaning that they are publicly owned airways and you're violating the rules concerning broadcasting by broadcasting all this music, telling, calling people N-words and telling people to shoot N-words in the face and telling people to sell drugs and telling people to drug women and date rape them. And I mean, it's garbage. It's filth. It's obscene, it's degrading music. So we'll, I'm going to work on that for Monday or one, whatever day we can get someone available next week. Recognize the fact we live behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. A lot of people suffering from misinformation, disinformation, lack of information. And it's important that we not only maintain the work of the Black Talk Media Project and keep Black Talk Radio Network online and on air, but it is also important that we build localized media platforms and digital radio stations that also, you know, deal in video, but media centers for our black community. So please make a donation today. All right. I'll be back on Monday. It's the weekend. Lots of slave patrollers will be out there setting up checkpoints. Not that you should be drinking and driving. You shouldn't be drinking and driving or using any kind of drugs and, and driving that impairs your ability to operate that vehicle, putting yourself in danger, putting other people's lives in danger. Uh, don't give a slave catcher a reason under the law to put you into slavery. With that said, be safe out there. Peace and blessings to all.